Welcome to another episode of Smart Politics. I'm your host, Anthony Arnold. This week, we'll be diving into foreign policy. We're going to examine a recent military incident and see if the way it was handled served our country's best interest. And because this is Smart Politics, we'll also be going through some history, and I'll be trying to give you context for why I feel the way I do. But before I begin, let me tell you what this episode won't do. I'm not going to talk about the financial cost of war. I'm not going to say that we have to choose between a vigorous foreign policy and a commitment to handling our domestic issues. Because I don't think it's true. Whatever you may think of America, we remain a uniquely powerful and capable nation. Unlike other countries, we don't have to choose which priority to address. We don't have to choose between intervening abroad and healthcare, for instance. We can do both if we choose to. We are restrained by political will, not resources. So when discussing foreign policy, it's vital that we don't think of it as a distraction that takes our focus away from more important issues. Instead, we should judge our foreign policy on its own merits, and we should think about it strictly in those terms. If you're ready, then let's begin. Let's ask the most basic question first. What is foreign policy? While it may seem like a silly thing to ask, the answer is likely more broad than you realize. Foreign policy is the tactics or strategies we use to deal with international actors. This can be everything from classic examples, such as military interventions or trade policy, all the way down to international aid, humanitarian relief, or climate change agreements. Each of these examples, along with many more, provide an avenue for America to impact the world and potentially an avenue for us to gain advantage. And there's no point in sugarcoating it. The main objective of any foreign policy decision is to give America an edge. You may view the Paris Climate Accords as a way to make the world better, but the people executing foreign policy also see it as a way for America to lead and thus burnish our reputation. No serious foreign policy thinker is going to be interested in advancing ideas that don't serve our needs first. For this episode, I'm only going to focus on military interventions, not because the other forms of foreign policy don't matter, they absolutely do, but the reality is that if I tried to break down the entirety of our foreign policy, you would be listening to me talk for hours. And while I enjoy making this show, I don't want to do that any more than you want me to do that. So we're talking military stuff, which leads us to the next question. What is the purpose of military foreign policy? This is also a huge question, but there are two things that I think are true. The first is that military policy should keep America safe. Nobody wants our nation to be the victim of an attack. And if our policy can prevent that, then we should attempt to do so. The second answer is the one that I think is trickier which is that our military policy should somewhat reflect the values we hold here at home. So if we believe that First Amendment rights are important here in our country, then we should encourage those rights elsewhere. 
Obviously, that can get you into tricky nation-building territory quickly, which is not where we want to be. But I think there's a case to be made that when America has a chance to preserve basic human rights, that we have an obligation to consider doing something. The trick is maintaining the balance between various competing ideals. Before we take a look at more recent history, I want to dive into the past and take a look at the times we've done this well and the times we haven't. The best example of what some people would consider a good war is World War II. From a security aspect, our needs were clear. Pearl Harbor had been attacked, over 2,000 Americans were killed, and a foreign country had officially declared war on us. So it was obvious that we had to respond. And the humanitarian value was equally clear. Japan had allied itself with Nazi Germany, which was in the midst of committing horrific war crimes. So when they declared war on us, it gave us the opportunity to intervene and save lives. Lastly, there was a clear objective. Our goals were to defeat Japan and stop Nazi Germany. When those were both accomplished, we were able to declare victory. From a foreign policy perspective, this represents the best possible scenario. Military intervention was necessary, it was just, and there was a goal that was both clear and achievable. And the results of this were obvious and not just abroad. World War II had a galvanizing effect on American society. There were scrap drives, which were events where individuals would donate unwanted metal, which the government could then use to help supply equipment necessary to the war effort. There were the war bonds, which the government encouraged citizens to buy as a way to do their patriotic duty and help finance the war. And in a surprising twist, there was the impact that the war had on civil rights. In January of 1941, President Roosevelt delivered his State of the Union in which he called for a world where all people had four fundamental freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. But while he was calling for us to protect those freedoms abroad, it wasn't lost that many people in our own country didn't enjoy those very freedoms. So when we joined the war, Black Americans, led by activist A. Philip Randolph, decided to make him start living up to those promises and threatened to boycott the armed services. This led Roosevelt to issue Executive Order 8802, which prohibited ethnic or racial discrimination in the defense industry. And of course, there were the over one million Blacks led by groups such as the Tuskegee Airmen, who would serve with distinction and honor and prove to people back home that Blacks were just as capable as whites. When the war ended, some of these veterans, such as Medgar Evers or Hosea Williams, would use their experiences as a soldier and the honor they had earned to force the nation to finally confront its own inadequacies. And while you certainly can't chalk all of this up to the war being good, to whatever extent such a thing is possible, I think it's fair to say that there's real value in having the country unite together and strive towards a common goal. But while World War II may have had a unifying effect, there was another war just over two decades later that had quite the opposite impact. I'm talking, of course, about Vietnam. In some crucial ways, Vietnam was everything that World War II wasn't. 
The war struck many Americans as unnecessary and perhaps even unjust. While Cold War fears were a very real part of the politics in that era, there was never a sense that our presence was required. What many people believed then and what history has largely decided since is that the rationale for the war was largely about containing communist China. And while that reason might have made sense to politicians, it was much more difficult to convince the American people of that. There was also the problem of knowing when the war effort would be ended. Unlike World War II, which had an obvious goal, Vietnam's was far murkier because it wasn't about doing anything in Vietnam. It was about sending a message to a third party. And who's to say when or even if that message has been received? These issues blew up in the face of American society. The tumultuous 1960s aren't the fault of a failed war effort, but failure abroad certainly contributed to the tension. If the leaders of the 40s were inspired by their service and the war effort, then the leaders of the 60s were disillusioned. Seeing the country fail to live up to its ideals in such an obvious way had a real psychological effect, and it made the domestic tensions at home that much more difficult to address. As opposed to drawing strength from our successes, our missteps were a source of weakness. They further pitted Americans against one another, made our government appear incompetent, and eventually radicalized some people against their own country. So what lessons should we take from these examples? At its best, military intervention can inspire. It can generate a sense of healthy pride in people, not the irrational nationalism that can lead to a feeling of superiority, but the kind of pride that causes citizens to believe the country is capable of great things. The kind of pride that can fill us with confidence and even unity. And while I certainly don't want to overstate the case, I do want to emphasize this point. Americans largely root for America. It's the reason why the Olympics can generate a feeling of accomplishment, even in those of us who have nothing to do with the competition. Seeing your country succeed feels good, and a functional military policy can and should be a part of that. So turning our eyes to the present, let's ask a more specific pair of questions. Why are we pursuing our current goals in the Middle East? And are we pursuing those goals in a way that makes us feel proud? The incident that I'm specifically referring to is the Biden administration's recent bombing of Iranian targets in Syria. The rationale that we've been given is that this was an act of self-defense. But we don't, and frankly shouldn't, accept that explanation. After nearly 20 years of wide-ranging military action, it's virtually impossible to figure out who's the aggressor and who's the defender anymore. The various sides have all spilled so much blood that if you start tracking who's caused harm to who, then you'll end up tying yourself into knots. Instead, we should ask the classic question. 
does this act make us safer? After all, that was the impetus for us getting involved in the region in the first place. And on that front, I think the answer is still no. While we shouldn't be naive about the reality that there are undoubtedly still those in the region who would relish the chance to do us harm, it's difficult to see how a drone strike in Syria targeting Iranians keeps Americans at home safer. And if American service people are in such grave danger, then the simplest solution to that problem is to bring them home, not expose them to greater danger via increased action. Of course, there's the second explanation given, which is that this is part of a strategy aimed at containing Iran. But how exactly does that benefit us? If Iran's neighbors have a problem with them, then perhaps they should be tasked with doing something about it. Increasingly, it seems as if the United States military is being asked to solve the problems of everybody else with little consideration as to how that helps us. And I know what some people would say, that it's too complicated to understand or that the world can't be broken down in such black and white ways. That military strategy is a game of chess that only the most advanced players can understand the board. But I think those people are wrong, and I think their errors answer the second question. It's hard to feel pride for something that nobody can explain to us. For nearly two decades, Americans have been fed an ever-shifting set of justifications. At first, it was in retaliation to 9-11, and we were going to get bin Laden. Then it was about stopping Saddam and getting his weapons of mass destruction. That was followed up with rhetoric about the need to promote democracy. It then shifted to broader calls to fight terrorism wherever it happened. And now those calls have been joined by calls to stop Iran, a logic that we briefly considered extending to North Korea. I hear all of this and I think about the words of General Norman Schwarzkopf. He was the leader of all the forces involved in the Gulf War. In 1992, he gave an interview while promoting his biography. And while the entire book is worth your time, there's always been one part of the interview and book that stuck with me. This was a little over a year after the end of the Gulf War, and he was defending the decision to leave Iraq, even though many people had wanted us to essentially occupy the country. He said, had we taken all of Iraq, we would have been like the dinosaur in the tar pit. We would still be there. And we, not the United Nations, would be bearing the cost for that occupation. And that's what I think we are now, a dinosaur, weighed down, plotting, and trapped in the past. Our actions have become a source of persistent discontent, a low level annoyance that saps our vitality and infuses our politics with negativity, even if it falls short of outright malice. Such policies are bad for us. While I can't claim to have all the answers, I do think it's time for us to start asking smarter questions to people in power. Instead of the persistent calls to end the forever wars, which I think are borderline naive, we should ask grown-up questions to our elected officials or candidates asking for our support. Would their policy ideas further American interest? Would they help maintain America's status as the indispensable nation? 
Do they advance the broad humanitarian ideas that America is supposed to represent? These are adult questions, and they're the kind we need to be demanding answers to before our troubles abroad generate real trouble at home. This podcast has been brought to you by Pointcast News. Thank you for listening.